The shame and guilt has to do with my continued story about something that happened or my fussing about what I call the WITOT fungus, which kills more people than COVID. It stands for W-I-T-O-T, and it is what I think others think. And so if you are living in WITOT or in shame, it is by definition in the future or in the past, anywhere but here. And so you can't unless something is happening at this very second, which 99% of the time it's not. And so absolutely just being here now, are you breathing? Are you safe? Are you here? Can you be here now? And just the practice of bringing yourself shrinking, as you said, here allows you to learn to exclude all that other gobbledygook, which doesn't do anything except slow you down and distract you anyway. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with author, speaker, and coach Kellen Flukiger. Kellen shares his own struggles in life starting with a very challenging childhood. Kellen went on to hold high-profile jobs while constantly wrestling with depression, anxiety, drug addiction, and going through a cycle of highs and lows. At age 52, Kellen had what he can only describe as a divine intervention. Since that moment in 2007, Kellen has written multiple books, found the love of his life, and started a global coaching practice. Kellen has made his goal for 2022 to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. I had a really, really awesome conversation with Kellen. His candidness is really just unmatched, and I, I really loved it, so I'm really eager to share it with you. As always, thank you to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Kellen Flukiger. How are you doing this evening? I'm delighted to be here, and the first thing I want to do is thank you. A podcast is a labor of love, and people that are putting their heart and soul into lifting others and blessing and doing good in the world just have all my respect and admiration. So thank you, and and I'm grateful for what you're doing and for doing this for the folks that are hearing it. Wow. Well, that's uh, incredibly generous. Um, and, and especially coming from, from yourself, um, as a podcaster yourself, you have your podcast, The Ultimate Life. You've got your website, kellenflugiger.com. You've written multiple books. And all of that is in service of trying to help people, um, you know, find, find a better life and, and discover something that maybe they didn't know they could have. Absolutely. And, and, you know, your ultimate life, I define it a certain way. It's defined as a life where every day is a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy that you create by serving with your divine gifts. And that's all I do. Mm. Morning to night, first breath to last, every day, all day, because it is so joyful, so rewarding, and such an exciting thing. And so the person you see here, uh, same day, every day, all day, uh, same <laughs> dude. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, so I, I do want to start um, with your own story, kind of, you know, back at the beginning, um, can you can you kind of just describe for the audience where where you're from originally? What was what was what was growing up like? What was what was your childhood? Well, I was born in San Francisco, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, in middle class ish family, two parents at home, pretty normal looking from the outside. My mom got married young and <clears throat> didn't really know anything about being a mom. She was very 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 strict 
religiously and uh, fanatic. Uh, and in her universe, the only way to make that happen, right, was through physical discipline. And the discipline that I got as a child today would be felony child abuse. It included a lot of physical beatings. I remember even all the way through my childhood, but I remember even in high school when I was I was big enough to have defended myself. Fear didn't allow it. I remember getting dressed last in the locker room in PE class at high school because I didn't want the kids to see I was black and blue because that meant something was wrong with me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that sort of thing. And what it did is it left me convinced of three things. Number one was that I wasn't good enough and I never would be. Something fundamentally wrong with me. Number two, that because my mom was, you know, I mean, she was the purveyor of righteousness or something that I needed no matter what I did to get back in her good graces. I needed to get that stamp of approval. And number three, that everything that ever went on in the family was private. So it was not okay to talk to anyone. Mm. And so the mix of those three things means that even when I left home at 17, I never talked to anyone. I believed with all my heart that everything that was wrong in and around my life was my fault. And that if I just didn't suck so bad, and if I just suck it up and do good, that it would be okay. Obviously, that's not true. But I didn't understand that at the time. And so what I lived for the next 35 years, from 17 to 52 was a cycle of creating big success financially, career-wise, and then sabotaging it. I don't deserve this. I can't have it. Then I would create even bigger success and then sabotage that. And that, that cycle repeated itself during those 35 years several times. It included getting married and divorced three times. It included addictions to all kinds of things and Stints in secret rehabs. I had some very high-profile positions. Have, you know, testified before Congress and this, that, and the other. And all, all it was kind of like on the outside, it's like, wow. And behind the scenes, it's like, oh, no. You know, that kind <laughs> of literally movie kind of stuff. And it would never have stopped on its own. In 2007, mm. after 35 years, I was 52 I had a divine intervention that was an, essentially an invitation to change course. So that at that time, I was a high-flying whoop-de-doo. I was making more money than I knew what to do with, and I was also a coke addict with uh, spending $3,000 a week on drugs and right. making so much money that didn't matter. So that was the situation I had brought myself to. I was single again for the third time. I had four of my 10 kids living with me. Three were grown and married. Four were teenagers with me and three were with, it's embarrassing to say it, one of my exes. Hmm. And that was me when things changed in August of 2007. Mm. Well, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious and I don't mean to, to parry the lead at all, but what what was the divine intervention? Like, what happened? <laughs> well, okay. Now I'm on well, the precipice. <laughs> yeah, well, that was intentional. So I'm just okay. dragging you right there. Uh, and, and literally, I remember during all that, that, I attempted suicide twice. I knew that I could, I, I remember saying to myself regularly, I don't know who I am. I don't feel anything. 
I can be anybody you like. Tell me what I need to do and what play. It's like method acting. I could do it well. Put on the three-piece Armani suit, go downtown, do battle, whatever I needed to do, win, make money. I get home, turn off the lights. I didn't know who I was. Anyway, on Friday in August of 2007, I came home from work and ready to go out and party for the weekend. And before I went out, I had this urge to turn on the TV. Now that doesn't sound like anything except I didn't watch TV. Mm. Uh, I'd had the electronics guys come in, put the biggest one that they made in because you know, you buy that stuff. Right. So, but I picked up the remote and I'm like, I don't know how to turn this on. So I asked one of the kids and my 16 year old daughter, you know, she punched some buttons and threw the remote at me and stomped out (laughs) It landed on a program. I'd never heard of, which was not weird because I'd never heard of any of them. And the name of it was intervention. Ah. Uh, if you know what that is, that's a reality TV show about people that stage interventions for busted loved ones. So I'd never seen it or heard of it. So I sat down and watched about 10 minutes. And the protagonist was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. Wow. <laughs> so I watched, yeah, 10 minutes. I, yeah, I'm not watching this crap. So I turned it <laughs> off and I went, did some more stuff, right? And then I was going to leave and I, I just was compelled to turn the TV back on. So I did. This time I knew how. Picked up, turned it on, right? That program started over. No, I don't have a DVR. No, it wasn't on the schedule. And no, it can't do that. I get it. But it did. So I watched it. it. Freaked me out. I'm like, holy crap. So I watched this program and it went badly. The guy yelled at his relative, stomped out, denied he had a problem and the whole nine yards. And when it got over, it, I was affected me enough that I didn't go out to party. I went to bed. Mm-hmm. So when I went to bed, I went to hell. And what I mean by that is I don't know where I was. But it felt somewhere out of body, felt like a theater, dark room, and I could hear voices and see scenes on the stage. And the scenes on the stage were from my life, and they focused exclusively on suffering from my little years when the suffering was inflicted on me up through the present, including all the suffering I had inflicted on everyone else with, you know, untreated depression and addictions and ruined relationships and on and on the the intensity of the emotional experience cannot be described it was horrific beyond anything i can even imagine but after an extended period of time a voice said it is enough i woke up and the sun was shining in the window which was weird because the windows faced west so i got up and it was five o'clock saturday afternoon so i'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours I threw away, I realized I'd been invited to change. I had no idea what I was going to do, where to start, how to do it, or anything else, because I'd never talked to anybody, and I didn't know anything about anything. But I knew I was done with that. So I threw away $1,000 worth of stuff I had laying around, quit, cold turkey. Hmm. That was the first half, and that got me sober. The second half was two weeks later. Because of the positions that I held, I used to get free stuff. Executives, you know, they people give you stuff because they want to be nice because they influence not bribery, but, you know, expensive bottles of this and free tickets to that and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So one of the things I got was a free pair of tickets to see Yo-Yo Ma in concert. Now, if you're a classical musician, you know who that is. And if you don't, you don't. But in classical circles, it's like, oh, so I thought, (laughs) holy cow, it'd be a real shame to waste this other ticket. And so I asked in the groups that I managed who who likes classical music. And some lady in one of the groups said, I do. And 
I looked at her and said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, fine. See you there. So I gave her the ticket and we met at the venue and the concert was spectacular. And, and at this time, I'm two weeks stone cold sober. Halfway through the show or so, I had this feeling come over me that I recognized from two weeks before. And this voice in my head said, <clears throat> you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. <laughs> um, yeah. I've screwed that up three times officially with some other messes in between. That's just not happening. So later that night, we were backstage because they were obviously backstage passes too, right? So mm. we're in the back there, and the feeling voice came back and said, yeah, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And so wow. I went crazy because, you know, she could have me arrested for harassment and, <laughs> I mean, all kinds of stuff, right? And I didn't even know if she had a boyfriend. I mean, like, what? Right. And so anyway, um, you don't win those arguments. So I did. And it went about like you would have expected. Are you out of your mind? Like, what are you talking about? Et cetera, et cetera. But she didn't call the cops and she didn't have me arrested. So that was good. Um, within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She walked away from her very lucrative career and I walked away from millions of dollars of contracts and we just sort of walked off into the sunset together and about four and a half months ago coming up on five months ago we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary wow now as amazing as that is for a story the reason it's important is because she was literally the angel sent to help me for the first time in my life talk to someone she found me counselors to talk to. She taught me what it meant to be a friend, to have a friend, to tell the truth, which I'd never done to anyone about anything mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And so those two things within a couple of weeks of each other was were invitations. And it's important to understand everything that comes across your path is always an invitation. You have to make the choices and then do the work like Getting sober was not trivial. It, the cravings, the urges, they didn't disappear. Learning how to create a relationship was not trivial. Just because that happened didn't mean that all the rest of life and the things about relationships don't need to happen. So I accepted for the first time ever the invitation to do something and completely left the industry, left the career, never looked back. That was it. Started life over again in September of 2007. And since that time, I decided that helping people do things they didn't know, didn't believe they could do was kind of something I'd done in the technical sense as a consultant. But I thought, I think that's coaching. So I studied some, did some certifications and started writing books. And since then, I've written 16 books and created a coaching practice around the world. And I've done a bunch of music albums, some of which go with the books to tell stories from different books. And all I do today, my goal for this year, 2022, is to help 10 million people to discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. Wow. And that's it. People say, what do you do for fun? That. <laughs> I, like, I don't do anything else. If I'm not doing a podcast or writing a book or doing some music, I mean, you know, joy is my, my wife. Oh, I didn't tell you the best part. Mm. Her name is Joy. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a remarkable set of uh, coincidences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, her, her, her mom lives with us. She's going to be 91 pretty quick. And so we moved. We lived in Phoenix for several years. And came up here in 2016. We're in Edmonton, Alberta. It's in the frozen north. 
we come up here to take care of her and she lives she's almost 91 she lives with us and we'll tell us she you know is done with this mortal life and so forth so but so we have regular stuff i mean you know we have a frail old lady running around the house we have to take care of and doctors and do all the rest of life and things but other than that i mean that is kellen so who you hear me be right now this is me every day all day period hmm. yeah no that's it's a remarkable a remarkable story and 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 you know i called it coincidences but then others might call that you know synchronicities or um or something maybe you know more divine right maybe more of a direct intervention maybe not so random. Well, look, we all feel those intuitions and connections with the infinite, the universe, source, call it whatever you want. God created us, okay? How and call them, call them whatever you want. I don't care. But we all feel those things and we ignore them most of the time. Mm-hmm. And when I say serve with your divine gifts, it is to learn to pay attention to those, say yes to the invitations and trust that there's opportunity that's you, you can't see right now. And that's one of the most important things that I've learned is to just trust that there's a place, there's an opportunity, there's a way forward. I don't need to know what it is right now. I need to know the next step. And if I do that, the road just keeps unfolding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what that kind of makes me think of, um, I was listening to, uh, I think, an interview with, I think it was maybe a former Navy, former Navy SEAL, but if not some special forces person. And he was talking about that that really the primary um, skill or talent or whatever you want to call it that someone needs to have in that world to succeed. I mean, certainly you need to be able to run and jump and shoot and do all the physical stuff a soldier needs to do, but really it's about how small can you make the moment, right? Like how much can you focus on kind of like what you just said? Like, I just need to take the next step. I don't have to understand what happens after a thousand of these steps. I just have to understand can I take the next step and then just stay in that place, which is, you know, very similar sounding to mindfulness. Is that it's something? That- 100%. The first five books I wrote was a series on meditation. Yeah. I even went so far as to define a moment, right? People say live in the moment. What the heck's a moment? Well, I thought I'm going to make up a definition. Hmm. So there's 60 seconds in a minute and 60 minutes in an hour and 24 hours in a day. So that means there's 86,400 seconds in a day. Okay, good. I decided arbitrarily there should be 10,000 moments in a day. It's a nice big fat number. Mm -hmm. That means a moment is 8.64 seconds. I love that because that's long enough to be something and short enough to be a moment. Right. And so being in this moment, it's the only thing I can do anything anyway. If I'm worried about the future, half of my attention is distracted from here. If I'm fussing about the past, half of my attention is distracted from here. The only place we have any impact at all is this moment. And that definition just helps a f- helps me put a frame around it. Yeah. Here now that eight point six four seconds. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. I've I've never I've never heard it quantified like that, but it makes a lot of sense, and it's something that I have, uh, you know, in the last few years, I've delved into mindfulness and meditation, and, and trying to make that a central part of the way that that I approach things. Um, and it dawned on me just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I was I had my own life coach <laughs> as a guest on the podcast to talk about something and. And we were talking about shame and guilt and it it dawned on me that it's kind of impossible to experience shame or or guilt or whatever you want to call it and, 
and be mindful at the same time. Because to experience the shame or the guilt is to put yourself in a different time frame, which is then antithetical to being mindful. And I'd never really thought about that before, but does that make sense to, to you who studied all this? hundred, hundred percent. Uh, I, I boil meditation down. I don't care what style you use and how you sit and or <laughs> whether you listen to somebody or not. It's three right. simple things. Slow down enough to be where you are and parenthetically when you are, because often we're somewhere else instead of somewhere else. Hmm. Slow down enough to be where you are here now. Step two is be still enough inside to notice what is there. And step three is trust that what comes to you is truth. Mm. And what you said about if I am present to this moment, the shame and guilt has to do with my continued story about something that happened or my fussing about what I call the wittot fungus, which kills more people than COVID. It stands for W-I-T-O-T, and it is what I think others think. Oh. And so if you are living in wittot or in shame, it is by definition in the future or in the past, anywhere but here. Yeah. And so you can't, unless something is happening at this very second, which 99% of the time it's not, and so, absolutely, just being here now. Are you breathing? Are you safe? Are you here? Can you be here now? And just the practice of bringing yourself, shrinking, as you said, here, allows you to learn to exclude all that other gobbledygook, which doesn't do anything except slow you down and distract you anyway. Yeah. I, I'm curious, and this might sound like a silly question, but... You know, I've, I've talked a lot about fear on this show, and, and fear can certainly be a very burdensome thing and a, a big obstacle, but I think that it's also, to some extent, just kind of a natural human thing, and, and it could be good, too, right? Maybe it's not good more often, but I think there are times where fear is useful. Is there a place, though, where shame or guilt are useful? Are they ever of, of value? Well, to the extent you feel guilty... Guilt can serve a purpose. Let's, let's equate guilt and pain for a moment. Pain is something in the physical body that tells me I'm receiving damage. You know, stop doing this. So it warns you of damage or of the, stop doing this so you don't get future damage. Let's, let's call guilt that same thing. Something is going on energetically in your mind or with, that you're doing that is damaging yourself or somebody else. That, that is the genesis. Something's wrong with this. Okay, well then treat it the same. It is a warning sign to prevent damage or to mitigate it or to stop future damage. Continue, and when that situation is resolved, continuing to live in shame is not useful. If you feel bad about something you made a mistake and maybe you made a mistake on purpose. Maybe you were cruel or unthinking. And I did a lot of that kind of crap as an addict that lied to people and did all kinds of stuff. So you feel bad about that. Great. Then do two things. One is assuming you've stopped doing whatever it is figure out what you can do to fix things. Most things you can't fix very well. Even if you give somebody money back you stole, that doesn't fix anything. Broken trust, broken relationships, 
uh, all of those things are irreparable. Okay, do what you can with an open, honest heart, and then forgive yourself or forgive the other person because it does no good to carry a backpack full of rocks for things you cannot fix or anger that you cannot solve because somebody did whatever they did to you. The only thing that does is it prevents you from being all you can be here now in this moment. Yeah. Well, it, it strikes me, you know, you, you talked earlier about, um, you know, with your childhood coming out of that abusive situation, how you, you felt like there's something wrong with me, right? So to some extent, I would imagine and I'm not trying to speak for you at all, but I would imagine there's some piece of or moment of time where you do try to forgive your mother, right? So you're not carrying that. But it's fun. But then, the la- oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I was just going to, the only thing I was going to piggyback to that is just, but then was there also an element of forgiving yourself, even though you didn't do anything wrong? <laughs> like you didn't yes. do anything to deserve it, but you still had to forgive yourself. For that. Does that make sense? <laughs> uh, complete sense. And it's funny that you should say that because the book I just finished in December, mm. which is at the publisher will be out in a week or two is titled forgiveness, a journey mm. of courage to a place of freedom and power. One of the statements in my morning preparation ritual says, I am forgiveness. I hold no anger, bitterness or judgment toward anyone for anything, including myself. So I have long since let those things go. And it doesn't matter. Someone doesn't have to accept my apology or amends. Someone doesn't have to get punished in some way that I determine is adequate. First of all, our our, uh, judgments are warped anyway. But none of those things are connected with the energetic act of releasing all of it. And, And forgiveness is is a personal act and has nothing to do whether you're forgiving someone that hurt you or forgiving yourself for stuff you did it's two sides of the you know, the two sides of a coin it is an energetic personal act to declare that the events of the past have no more effect on your ability to be who you are today talked about the the addiction part of it but but there's also a mental health aspect to it a depression right mm-hmm. can you talk about that side of it because you you talked at length of no, not at length but you, you shared about the addiction part of it but can you talk about what the depression side of it looked like that's not tied to 
the success, right? That's that's maybe not tied to the 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 drugs. It, it, not, I really, say not my addiction was to yeah. self-loathing. Mm. The drugs and the alcohol and everything else was the medication to mask the symptom. I needed to prove over and over again that I was not okay. That not okay was one of the three fundamental things I came out of childhood with and every time things went okay i don't deserve this i can't have this i have to wreck it so i did and that wasn't a conscious choice and i'm not good enough i can't do that and i had typical signs of depression like no energy and you don't want to get up and you can't do things and it affects your appetite and this and that and the other but it was the the the, the genesis of all this was a, a a dna level conviction that i wasn't good enough and so an external circumstances conspired to make that not true, meaning I made a lot of money or got a lot of recognition or something. It's like, I, I can't be here. Yeah. That, that's so amazing. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say I was addicted to self-loathing. And, but I was thinking of that before we started talking. I was thinking, I wonder if it's possible for someone to be addicted. Because when we talk about addiction, it's always to a substance or something, right? And maybe maybe a pattern of behavior like like gambling right that's not really a substance but it's still what we would call a vice but but it's it's deeper than that right like i, I all of those things are really just manifestations of the deeper and, and so then is it really to some extent an addiction to self-loathing and also just like a routine of thought does, mm -hmm. does that make sense Yes, it is. An addiction to self-loathing. What is an addiction? It is a dysfunctional coping mechanism mm. that we adopt to deal with an internal pain we haven't fixed yet. So we have an internal pain. We all have them. There are good ways to deal with it. There are not good ways to deal with it. If you don't address it, you stuff it, you let it fester, or you adopt some dysfunctional way of masking or coping with pain, that becomes a habitual coping mechanism. Gambling, sex, shopping, drugs, alcohol, a codependency, people-pleasing, all of it is is triggered by the same need to mask the pain that comes from an unresolved internal conflict so then so you know i i hear constantly um even in in you know conversations about about drug addiction stuff a phrase that's or you know set of phrases that's tossed out a lot is like look, if a person is struggling, you can try and be supportive, but ultimately they have to want to save themselves. And so then when a person doesn't act in a way that saves themselves, that then implies that they don't want to, to be better and, and then implies <laughs> that they want to suffer. But I don't believe that that's true. I don't think that anyone wants truly to suffer and so then that means that there must be something beneath desire that drives that. And, and to me, that would be, it seems like that answer is belief. Does that, does anything I'm saying resonate? Does it make yeah, sense? So, okay. so what I think is the foundation of this is you, you've lost the love. You don't love yourself anymore. Ah. Uh, and so you don't believe 
you're worthy of love. You believe you're too far gone. You believe that all that crap that people say is good for somebody, but not you because you made too many mistakes. You're too far gone. You're actually, in fact, truly not worth the effort, not worth the time. And you have you you don't love yourself. In fact, you start to believe that all the crap that people say about you and everything else is true. It's true. You, you run out of excuses, deflections and other things. And you get to a place where even this whatever your preferred coping behavior is, substances or other behavior, doesn't even work anymore because you still come face to face with the truth. They're right. I, I don't love myself. And so I deserve whatever's coming to me. I deserve all this. And so I don't think anybody runs around and says, hmm, what can I do so I can make myself suffer? Right. <laughs> right. I, I, you know, I, I never I never said that. And, you right. know, and I had an infinite access. I had enough money that I had anything I wanted to buy of substance, anything, any amount. And I never said, hmm, let me see. I used that to try to kill myself once. But you you don't do that. The pain of the disconnect, I, I'm not supposed to do this. I know I don't even care anymore. I just, I don't know who I am. I can't stand this. I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself. And that refrain, I hate myself, gets so loud and so profound that you do anything to turn off the noise. Yeah. So it's not, I want to suffer. I hate myself. Okay, how can I turn that down? Well, you know, enough of different substances, you lose the ability to string coherent thoughts together. And so you can't focus in that way and, and, and you know, you trigger other spontaneous behaviors, laughing and silly and different things that, you know, for a moment distracted, even though, you know, withdrawal and hangover and everything, you know, there's going to be hell to pay, but at the moment it doesn't matter. Right. Now it's deeply fascinating to hear you say that. I, I, um, I have someone that that's that I know in my my personal life uh, that I won't name, but that suffers from depression pretty severely. And and uh, at one point, I was suggesting to them that maybe they would try um, affirmations, right? Just self affirming statements. And and I, I suggested that maybe just to start, just stand in front of a mirror and say I love you, right? Just look at yourself and say I love you. And and this person, I mean, it, it was like I asked them to jump off a cliff without a, a, a parachute. Right. Like it was so they were so afraid of that. And and it was hard for me to understand. But I think what you just said explains it. It's it's because at the root of it, it it's it's not desire and it's also not belief. And, and it, a part of me feels kind of cheesy saying it. And I don't know why, but it, but it's love. Like it, it, it is, really is that. not cheesy at all. What yeah. happens is you, you we look in the mirror, whether we're actually standing in front of a piece of glass or not. We're always looking in a mirror inside or actually. And I do that exercise. I have clients do that. Look in their own eyes deeply and say, I love you. I had a client tell me one time, I'd rather put my hand in a meat grinder. <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what he said. And, it, you know, change the word, change anything, look away, make it not true. That's OK. There's a book called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It. Uh, and it's, it was a very thin book, came out of a TED Talk, and the first edition had a guy with a gun to his head, a silhouette on the front. Second edition doesn't have that picture, but it's uh, <laughs> and it, it's it's thicker, but it's a really good book, and it's a book about a guy who was at the verge of suicide. And just by saying, I love myself, 
over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times, he was able to gradually change the song, the refrain in his head. And it's not that weird to say that because we say things to ourselves. I suck. I'm stupid. I hate myself. I'm dumb. I did that wrong. We repeat that refrain without pause. So yeah. why would not a refrain of, of truth, which is I am divine, I am an intentional creation. Those things are true even if you screwed up 90 million times. And what happens, one of the names, one of the albums I did, so I told you I wrote a book, Tightrope of Depression, My Journey from Darkness, Despair, and Death to Light, Love, and Life. And I wanted to set that book apart. So I thought, what can I do? And so then I can write some music. So I wrote an album of 11 songs telling stories from the book. And <clears throat> the feeling that you have when you look in the mirror and you know that everything everybody said is right, you know there are no more deflections, you know there are no more excuses, you know there is no more recourse. There is no word or words for that thing. So I gave it a name and I called it the name of the black. And that's the name of that album. And it is the place where then the only conclusion is, okay, it's time for me to go. It's time to get rid of myself. And that comes from a place of ultimate despair. And there's no other answer. And I guess they're right. You know, that kind of thing. And it's nonsense. It's not true. Right. But that's the place you get to. And uh, your, your friend, my heart aches. I love them. Because none of that is true. It wasn't true for me. It's not true for them. And the first answer is however weakly, however feebly, however much you crawl, you need to reach out and talk to someone and keep doing it. And that's what I didn't do and got to those places. And, you know, we, we all know, shrinks know, and those of you who have been there know where that road goes. Right? Yep. So So you can't... There's a book about addiction called The Waterfall Principle, and it's one of the best books about addiction that I know. And it talks about if you're in a canoe and you're going toward a waterfall and you're right at the waterfall, what is the chance that you won't go over? Uh, okay, that would be zero, right? And you're right at the waterfall. So what does it take to recognize the signs of approaching waterfall. Well, there's the sound, there's the current, and the river starts moving a little different. And so learning the process of getting out of self-loathing or taking control of mental illness, and that doesn't mean suck it up and think happy thoughts. Maybe it's go see your shrink. Maybe it's call somebody. Maybe it's, oh, crap, I forgot my meds. Whatever it is, it's, take, it's noticing a little bit further and a little bit further back from the waterfall. Okay, because if you're at the waterfall, you can't help it. You're dead. If you notice the symptoms and feelings and signs, even 50 yards in front of the waterfall, it might be tough, but you might do it. 100 yards, 500 yards. And you start noticing things when you're back in what they call the safe waters of recovery. Then, you know, paddling to the shore, that's easy. So it's a practice of choosing to notice and then take action. And when you fail, okay, I failed. No song and dance, no parade, no firing squad, get up, recommit, right? And start noticing again, what's going on in my life? How am I feeling? What are the stories? What's the language in my head? You know, what am I doing here? What else could I do? Can I do something one 
percent better. Like this is not an all or nothing game ever. Right. No. So I just very recently um, read the the book Atomic Habits, um, which talks a lot about some of the the same ideas that you just kind of shared. And that's something that he talked about that I thought was really fascinating, which is the idea that it, it's it's way more important or important maybe not the right word valuable might be a better word but it's more valuable to do something very insignificant consistently than it is to do something really significant once in a while so it, it, and it it made me think of that when you were talking about no matter how feebly it might be just talk to someone else just reach out and it doesn't mean that that's because today you solve everything it just it's just being engaged in that so that part of your identity now becomes I'm someone that reaches out for help when I need it, or I'm someone who does whatever practice you're going to do to try and save yourself. That's different than the, the self shame and the self loathing thing. I have a thing I call the success cadence Hmm. that I teach people. And it is, we often set goals. Uh, New Year's resolutions are famous for this. We set big goals and then we keep them for five minutes or five days or five weeks or whatever. And then we quit. And the reason is because two things, one, we set goals that are really big and two, we don't put any structures in place to keep them. So instead you got to create the success cadence, which is really simple. It's this. I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. I said it, I did it. I said it. I did it. Now, if you make goals or commitments or things that you're going to do and you don't do them, fine. Shrink the damn goal. Right. Get it small enough so that you can get the cadence going. Because when you make promises, commitments to yourself or others, and we treat ourselves worse than we do others, and that's a mistake fundamentally, we become a person we don't trust. I know every time I open my mouth and say something, there's only a 2% chance I'll do it or whatever. Okay, then shrink the game. Until there's 100% or 90%. I said it. I did it. I said it. I did it. Then you become a person who does what they say, who creates success. That change is infinity because now you've taught yourself, even if you have to shrink the goal and shrink it, shrink it, shrink it, shrink it, it doesn't matter. I said it. I did it. I said it. I did it. And along the way, you become a person who trusts themselves, who knows if it comes out of my mouth, it will happen. Mm-hmm. We get a lot more careful about what we say, <laughs> but we also create the success cadence of I said it, I did it, I said it, I did it, I said it, I did it, which is just another way of saying exactly what you said. It's way more important to do, do something minuscule and consistently than to either fail spectacularly or do something big every once in a while. Right. Yeah. No, I think I just in it. I think that that can feel um, counterintuitive. You know what I mean? Just at a at a glance, right? Because it's like, no, I, there's this big problem, so it needs big action, right? It it, need, it demands a big solution, and I think that that's where people can get lost in, in yeah, and being caught up in that and not being caught up. I mean, really, just more in the process, right? Get caught up in the process more than the solution. Well, I'm not saying you can't set big goals and take big, hairy, audacious action. Go ahead. But if you find yourself doing in a repeated cycle of I swear I'm going to do this and then not, and I swear I'm going to do this, then swear smaller, you know, like make smaller goals so that you did what you said. It's not about not accomplishing your big goals. It's not about shrinking your expectations. It's not about being a wimp and not fulfilling your purpose. It's about getting on the road to success. So you have a chance of fulfilling that big, hairy, audacious goal. 
Yeah, yeah. No, and I think I was still kind of in the context of maybe someone who's, you know, not not able to to feel good about themselves almost ever and and you know but but certainly yeah what you said makes sense um so i'm curious you know if someone's listening to this and they're interested in in working with you what does that look like do they go to the website and schedule a call do they send an email do they work one-on-one with you what does it look like so it looks like a lot of things my goal (laughs) this year is to help 10 million people discover develop and serve with their divine gifts so i have a lot of videos on youtube i share a lot of stuff on facebook i have a podcast you mentioned earlier with a zillion episodes Uh, there's lots of ways to do it that's all free stuff i put out there to encourage people to take action take control their own lives to exercise their sovereign right to be who they want to be. If somebody actually wants to work with me, one of the fun things about having a weird name like Kellen Flukiger is I can't hide. So if you, you know, I had no competition for my website, KellenFlukiger.com was $2, right? Nobody wants that. That's fine. Great. Yay for me. So on my website, you can get on my email list. You can friend me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on YouTube. If you really want to talk, just send me a message and say, I'd like to chat. You know, there's no charge. And in and, and that exploration, we'll find out what you want, what's going on. And we'll see if it makes sense. Like I have, I have a program, you know what it's called? Live without fear. Oh, wow. It's a product I have living without fear. How to do that. I have another product. It's called Master Your Monsters. And it's funny. It's a play on when we were kids. We thought monsters were under the bed and in the closet. And as adults, we have those same kinds of things that spring out of nowhere and eat our lunch from time to time. And they're different names and they're different things, but there's a way to master those monsters. So there's all kinds of standalone programs. I have small group coaching programs. I have 90-day like hardcore blast. I'm going to get this done. So there's a lot of accountability and structure. One of the books I wrote is called the results equation, which is a process for getting any goal accomplished. It doesn't matter. The process of success is the same. The actions are different. And then I do do private coaching. And if you know, that all comes out of conversation. So the answer is, I have no idea if I can help you, whoever you are, let's talk and see. And then we'll know. Uh, I work for, I love working with people who are committed to ending addiction to mediocrity, right. uh, who will not settle for the obvious and or easy. And I don't care what kind of hardballs they've had from life thrown in the mix. They're done settling. I'm done. Okay. You know, then, then we'll figure out where you want to go, what that looks like for you and, and create it. So I have quote products, but my real thing is let's create a program for you based on what you want, where you are right now, the stories you have been letting run your life that you'd like to change and we'll create that opportunity. So if you want to talk, tell me you want to talk and we'll figure that out. Awesome. No, I think that's great. One other thing I wanted to ask you about um, is, you know, something else I've I've um, come across and, and discovered to be true for myself, at least, is, and it, again, it, it, it's almost counterintuitive on a, at least on a, the most basic level, and that is that gratitude, practice of gratitude, and, and that might be saying gracious things or writing things that you're grateful for, but it also could be helping other people, right? Whether that be maybe in your community or in your neighborhood or whatever that is. And so it's through this act of giving that then I actually feel better, right? So it's like this backward selfish loop (laughs) where I get to feel better by doing something for someone else. 
Can you talk about that at all? Is that something that you you, you coach to at all? Is gratitude? A hundred million percent. Yeah. We are built as human beings to love and serve each other, period. Mm. Being grateful for what you have, big or small, is a mindset that chooses to look at things as possible instead of impossible. Optimistic versus pessimistic. People think optimists are stupid. No, they're, at, they're actually smarter than pessimists. A 20-year study by the most... Uh, empowered authority in the field, Dr. Martin Seligman, proved the people who choose to be optimistic live longer by several years, make more money. They even do better on the sports field and in areas where similarly talented people act. So uh, optimism is simply a choice to believe there's a solution. Pessimism or realism, if people, some people call that, <laughs> is a choice to believe there probably isn't. Right. Or if there is, it's really hard. Okay. That has chemical effects in your body that are poison. So you're free to make that choice. And someone who chooses to be skeptical and negative, it may be the mark of a sophistication. But you know what? It's a costly one. Right. Yeah. Okay. So absolutely. And here's how I teach gratitude. There's all kinds of things like a rampage of appreciation where you say a million things. I'm grateful for that. I don't have an ingrown toenail today. I'm grateful that that zit I had yesterday is gone. I'm grateful I can get up and walk. You can do that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. What I have discovered is way more powerful is pick one thing at a time and think about it and be grateful until the experience of gratitude gets in your body. Like, you know what it feels like to really feel gratitude. So pick something that you that's true. I don't mean baloney. Pick something that's true and think about how that gratitude is real until you have that experience, neurotransmitters, just like when you get mad or happy or whatever, the experience of gratitude. Do that with two or three things, and that'll do way more for you um, physically and spiritually, energetically, than any of the other things that I have seen or been exposed to, because you're you're, you're connecting with the truth of that. The other thing you said about service, it is foundational. It is foundational. If you want to be happy, go do something for somebody. If you want to feel better about yourself, get off your butt and go serve. I don't care what you feel like. You know, go down the, go down the street and pick up some garbage. Like, this doesn't have to be an organized service project. Go say hi to someone who's sitting on the side of the road with nothing. Go give 50 cents to a homeless person. Like, go do something that is service, no matter how small it is. You don't need anything organized. And you know what? You don't need anybody's permission. And you don't need anybody's agreement. I can love you without your permission. And you can't do anything about it. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. And I love that you said that, I, you know, because again and again, we keep, it's interesting how often we've, we've focused on making things small again, right? Like the, the, the daily routine doesn't have to be that every day is you're a superhero. Um, and the act of service doesn't have to be that you go and, and organize your own nonprofit organization or, or maybe even more realistically, it doesn't mean that you every time have to go to the soup kitchen right? And volunteer for a four hour shift. It could be like you said, picking up trash in the neighborhood or something small that still, I think, connects you to that feeling of I'm part of this and I'm helping to make this better. <laughs> 
You can't help it. If you go pick up three pieces of garbage, throw it in the trash on a trailer park, it feels better. And you can't pretend in any universe that it doesn't. It makes <laughs> you want it. to go pick up a fourth one. You right. walk by that and it's like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do any more. Oh, come on, just one more. And you, you, it just happens. That's how we're built. We even get neurochemical rewards. Our body releases oxytocin and other good things in community. Hugs do that. Doing nice things. Do it. We're built literally, physiologically to love and serve each other. Yeah. I think it's all super powerful. Um, Kel and I, to, to say I'm humbled to have you on the show is an understatement. Um, but I, I, I just, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you this evening. Um, like I said, we've got your website, kellenflukiger.com. I'll have links to that in the show notes and, and all the other stuff as well, your podcast and you know book list and all that sort of stuff. All that being said, though, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to hit on tonight or anywhere else we could direct people to to, to connect with you? Yeah, you can find me wherever you want. The thing I want to leave you with is I'm dead serious about loving yourself. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how sad you are, what's happened to you. I don't care how many bad things have been done to you or how bad the world's piling on. It's never too late. Like if there was ever anybody that could and should have been left at the bottom of the canyon, I'm the poster child. And if God has enough interest in me, in the place that I was with the amount of wreckage, like if you want the details, go read Tightrope, but the amount of wreckage that was behind me, it's never too late. It's never too late to matter. It's never too late to take that first molecular tiny step towards anything. It's never too late to matter and to have a big impact, not all at once, one piece of collected trash at a time, one smile at a time, one choice to say, well, maybe I don't love you, but I can at least stand your face. Okay, fine. Start there. Start somewhere. It's never too late. And the future is not an extension of the past unless you let it be. The future is a blank page. You have the pen. Write boldly, write from your heart and live into the truth of who you really are. Yep, I love it. Um, again, Kellen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. You're welcome. And thank you again for your effort in putting this together, the labor of love that you do to make this happen, and those lives that you bless and hearts that you lift.
Her business suits standing at our back door Telling us all about the change Her Sunday shoes standing at our front door Telling us all Business suit standing at our back door 
us all about the chain A Sunday shoe standing at our front door Telling us all Well, that's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Kellen for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. I also want to thank Misha Zarin for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you for listening. I also invite you to check out my other show, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters. That show can be found on any podcast app. Again, thanks for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up.